Welcome to episode 394 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views we're about to express today do not reflect the opinions of our institutions, our firms, our clients, or even those spineless jerks at Spotify. Joining me for the news roundup <laughs> will be Scott Shapiro, professor of law and professor of philosophy at Yale Law School, founding director of the Yale Cybersecurity Lab, David Chris, founder of Culper Partners, Dave Itell, the information security specialist and founder of the ITEL Foundation, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the chief provocateur for today's program. Uh, why don't we start with something that calls the background of at least three people on this call, uh, and that is a slightly mysterious announcement by Senators Wyden and Heinrich saying the CIA has a secret program collecting American data in a way that Americans thought wasn't covered by the law they think is applicable. Dave, could you figure out what they were talking about? No. I think and, that, and I don't think that, you're meant to figure out what they're talking exactly, about, I guess. Exactly. Uh, so, so far we know there's a CIA <laughs> program that someone is collecting records from U.S. citizens and uh, apparently during analysis, this is protected by a pop-up box, which kind of reminds me of the many pop-up boxes I get every day that I just click through. <laughs> and this one apparently is to remind analysts that they need a foreign intelligence reason to be viewing these records about an American citizen, which feels like just on the face of it, it does feel a bit weak. And, you know, the U.S. Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, which released a you know, three-page redacted note about this, recommending that perhaps we shore it up a little bit by making them type in what the actual reason is that they're looking at this data. Seems like a good idea to me. There, there might obviously be reasons that it's a terrible idea that I'm not aware of, but so far we know very little. And it's, you know, you get a, you know, an article from the Washington Post about it that says secret program. That sounds very exciting, but it could be something extremely pedantic. Like, you know, there's social media data and sometimes, you know, you're reading a, a feed and you see things in the feed, right? It could be something like that. So very hard to understand for someone, you know, who's not completely in the loop. So my guess is, since it's it seems to be accepted that it's a CIA program, that it's a foreign intelligence program, which means it's probably aimed at collecting foreign intelligence, which means aimed at non-Americans, but easily could be scooping up Americans because you can't gather intelligence around the world without scooping up some American. David, does that sound right to you? Yeah. It does. I think it's probably a bulk collection program, uh, almost certainly in the counterterrorism context, because the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board has only that mandate, so not a nation state or you know espionage program. It's one of two so-called deep dives that the P-Club did beginning in about 2014, when they started looking at collection under Executive Order 12333, meaning collection that is outside the ambit of FISA and other statutory authorities for foreign intelligence collection. So this tends to be collection abroad. They did Deep Dive 1, which concerned financial data, and the P-Club at the uh, member level issued a report and recommendations. This, what we're talking about here, is so-called Deep Dive 2 on some other kind of data not specified, but it does appear to be collected in bulk. 
And what you and Dave said, I think, is right, that the staff level recommendations on this deep dive to not member level at the P-Club, for whatever reason, maybe they had member turnover or something that prevented them from getting it out, are focused on tightening the kinds of protections that follow under their EO 12333 guidelines, which, of course, to make things a little bit more complicated, were revised in a major way a few months after uh, Deep Dive 2 report was done. So, you know, you've got sort of a, a kind of a confused timeline. But what Dave said is right. They, they seem to be focused on more careful controls around documentation of purpose, around decisions to query, around retention of data over the long run. And there may be recommendations you know, that follow under the guidelines under what are called the VPS provisions, provisions that apply when a big data set has a high volume proportion or sensitivity of U.S. person information in it. If it does, then under the guidelines, CIA is supposed to think in a more rigorous and careful way around it, adopt some additional protections, get some higher level approvals, do more training, more careful audit trails, that sort of thing. And that seems to be what's in the offing here. There's also a little marginal dispute about whether and to what extent Congress was, in fact, kept fully and currently informed. There's a hint in the letter from Wyden and Heinrich that it wasn't, that Congress wasn't kept so informed. The CIA in its releases says, of course, it was. It'd be a long time before we get to the bottom yeah, of that one. Yeah, sound, sound, I, my guess is that they were, but they weren't paying much attention, uh, and it probably wasn't. <laughs> it probably wasn't presented uh, so as to say, "Oh my God, look, we're violating civil liberties." So, and of course, rarely do the briefings have that framing, Stuart. <laughs> You're absolutely right. <laughs> uh, this does feel. I mean, of course, we all remember that Senator Wyden famously was saying stuff like this prior to the disclosure that. There was a major program uh, involving all U.S. phone records. This feels like, you know, this feels like the Stones saying, hey, you liked us in 67? We got another show for you. Better show up. <laughs> I, I'm not sure it's going to turn out to be anything like that kind of a blockbuster. Let me ask, though, Dave made a good point. He said, so it's a pop-up box. You can click through it. Should you have more? And that sounds like the staff saying, which is what, you know, this is what everybody says, right? Well, we should make it easier for us to do this the next time. How about you give us more data? But if you're, if it's the sort of database that you have to burn through link after link after link after link to get something useful, then stopping to type over and over again, yes, I do have a foreign intelligence purpose, or worse, you know, spelling it out, it really does slow you down. And being able to get quickly to the data is more likely to, to produce useful intelligence. How does that argument play out these days in the Justice Department, say? The recommendations from the staff here appear to be that the analyst memorialize, that is, type in or at least check a pick something from a drop-down menu, the justification for a query when the system determines that the information relates to U.S. persons. And so I think by and large, you know, that would be something that people who want to regulate this space would smile on. And it, it, it has an analogies in the FISA context and FISA Amendments Act context, and even going back to the bulk telephony metadata context before it was regulated by 
statute. I think there's a lot of work being done by the question when the information is deemed <laughs> to be relevant to U.S. persons. Yeah. Because if, as you said, Stuart, and, I, and by the way, I, I know nothing of this program other than what I've just read in the news, but if it is a bulk collection or bulky collection anyway that is non-discriminants, and if it does have U.S. person data in, you know, they have some obligation perhaps to review it. But how you know whether the data are U.S. person data, you know, is not always a, yeah. an automatic or easy thing to do. All right. So let's move on because we've got the Bitcoin bandits and cringe rap coming up. <laughs> uh, Scott, I don't want to spend too much time on cringe rap. These are some very unlikely mega bandits, but it sure looks from the documentation as though if nothing else, they had hold of this, you know, $3.6 billion worth of Bitcoin for years, including very shortly after the Bitfinex uh, robbery. So what is this, what, what was the background on this and how did we get here? And what does it tell us about this supposedly anonymous cryptocurrency? Yeah, well, where to start? There's a Saturday Night Live skit involving Stefan where you'd say, this story has, you know, this club has everything. Well, this story has everything. It's got like hacking and Bitcoin, dark web, shady, Russian cryptocurrency exchanges, terrible TikTok rapper, tech angel investors. It, 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 it's a fascinating story, not only because of the characters involved, but also it kind of gives you an insight into the way in which Bitcoin is laundered. And in fact, how hard it is and how tedious it is to do. So the, ba the basic background is what you mentioned that so Bitfinex was a, a very large crypto exchange in, I believe, the British Virgin Islands, and they were hacked in 2016. 12, 120,000 Bitcoins were stolen at the time, which was 71 million, which is now four and a half billion. And it goes to one wallet, and the hack was so big that it crashed Bitcoin prices, uh, the, the price of Bitcoin by 20%. Well, anyway, in 2017, the money starts getting, the, the Bitcoin is withdrawn slowly and slowly from the wallet. And they, whoever does it, tries to launder the Bitcoin through a bunch of accounts on a Russian dark web crypto exchange called Alphabay. Now, Alphabay, because it's Russia a dark web crypto exchange, it doesn't have know your customer anti-money laundering. Regulations. I think they know their customers. Um, and so, <laughs> <laughs> that's right, right, right. So what happened was whoever's laundering wants to use Alphabay as like a pass-through to obscure the financial trail. The money goes from Alphabay to a U.S.-run crypto exchange and opened up, several accounts were opened up by this person using fake identities. And the U.S. firm is like, well, like, who are these people? And there's no verification. And the money is frozen. 186000 is frozen. And it, it, I, I have, a, have a sense at this point that, like, the accounts are frozen. They have to figure out a way to get the money out. And Partly, Alphabay in 2017 was seized through an international effort by the FBI and a bunch of other law enforcement um, agencies. And so, like, it, it, it's hot. It's, it, it, it's tricky for these people. But Bitcoin keeps on going up and up and up and up. And so what was worth, once worth $71 million is now worth $4.5 And they start basically trying to cash out by siphoning the money 
from the wallet and from various crypto exchanges to U.S.-based crypto exchanges. And it's here that, you know, like U.S. crypto exchanges, they like they need your address, they need your email, they need your, you know, government IDs. And we don't know exactly how, but the FBI gets a search warrant for whoever laundered this money for their cloud account, and they find everything. They find everything in this account. What they find is uh, especially some encrypted files, and it takes them a while to decrypt them. They decrypt them earlier this year, and then they find everything. Yeah. They find all the Bitcoin addresses, all the All accounts, in a neat little spreadsheet, the, right? Well, Right, right. <laughs> in a neat spreadsheet. And we, they, basically, we find out who they are. They're, so just very quickly, they're a married couple. The man is Ilya Lichtenstein, also known as Dutch. He's Russian-born, crypto bro, tech entrepreneur, so uh, self-styled angel investor. The the comedy really is, is the wife, uh, Heather Morgan, who runs an email marketing company. She's also a parody rapper under the name of Rosal Khan, which is Genghis Khan with pizzazz. And her website describes her engaging in sexy horror comedy, which I don't know on it. I don't want to know what that <laughs> is. But what, what, what's fascinating is how little they're able to get out of the wallet, how much, how difficult it is for them to do it, and how little they buy with it. I mean, they buy a $500 Walmart gift card, Uber. They buy some NFTs. Ilya buys gold and has the gold shipped to his house. I didn't even know you could get gold shipped to your house or PlayStation. So anyway, what I think is really quite fascinating from this is how sophisticated the treasury is getting in being able to trace a Bitcoin and how unbelievably hard it is to to launder uh, Bitcoin when Everything you do is on an eternal, immutable public ledger, ledger uh, mirrored all around the world. And so I, I, it's a really, really absolutely fascinating case. I mean, there's so many unanswered questions here, like, did they do the hack? And, you know, like, I don't how, see how they end up with I the mean, money I, if they didn't do the hack, if, if he didn't do it. So. Yeah, right. But these guys don't seem like the most sophisticated maybe he didn't have to be in 2016 I and mean, he's pretty it's, competent uh, she doesn't purport to be a hacker uh, as far as i could tell but he may well have the skills to get it and he worked pretty hard to to launder it i i suspect that the alpha bay compromise gave everybody a real leg up uh, and that that's right. that's the part they're not talking about there's a lot they're not talking about in this but and the the thing is written to make it look as though there's no hope if you're trying to launder these funds but it yes. certainly doesn't look like there's much hope i would recommend that listeners just read the arrest warrant affidavit it's really it's it's very well done. It explains peel chaining, chain hopping, various of the kind of interesting ways in which Bitcoin is laundered and how the feds can trace it. So I recommend it. It's, it's actually well done. I'll just put in a second. It's David Chris for um, reading the uh, affidavit in support of the complaint. It's by an IRS agent and it is really quite good. I had a slight feeling the U.S. government here was doing a little showing off. I don't mean that in a bad way, but sort of just really, as Scott was saying, just showing how tedious and awful it is to try to move this money around while it's Bitcoin and just sort of how pedantic and standard are the money laundering techniques that are being applied 
in this universe and how they can be tracked. I think it is unusually, I guess, for a situation like this, considerably easier and more agreeable to read the affidavit in support of the complaint than it is to watch Heather Morgan's videos. I love this podcast and I will bear almost any burden. I could not get through more than about a minute yeah. uh, before my pain tolerance was exceeded. So I apologize for not going all the way to the bottom of it, but a little bit goes a long way, I would say, on that front. I think there's going to be an interesting question of what they do with the money. Assuming the government has the money, it's obvious not, it doesn't belong to these guys. But my memory was that Bitfinex made everybody whole after a fashion. They gave them, you know, a different kind of coin and, and then ultimately paid it off so that people were compensated for their losses in that hack. And now, of course, this money is worth a lot more. And there's going to be a big fight over who gets it. The government claimed that they were that they're giving it back to the victims. Um, so it's it'd be it'd be yeah. And then maybe Bitfinex what... says uh, we want uh, the money we compensated you with back because you shouldn't be compensated twice. Well, it will be interesting. I don't know the answer to that one. All right. Yeah. So here's another unanswerable question: Are we ever going to get an end to the fighting over transatlantic? data exchanges, which is reaching now, now that it's in the hands of litigators, it's a drumbeat of bad news for U.S. companies. And GDPR and the Schrems decisions mean that pretty much any data transfer across the Atlantic is problematic. And we're starting to find out, or Europeans are starting to find out, just how much of the internet as they know it depends on those transatlantic data flows. David, uh, you looked at the recent Keneal case and the IAB case. We talked about those in the past, but there is kind of a theme that's worth digging deeper into. Well, yeah. I mean, I definitely think it's worth looking at this through a wider lens. So the Keneal case is a finding that the use of Google Analytics on a French website is problematic, and there was an Austrian decision of a similar nature a while back. You know, for those who don't have a, a deep background in it, this is an application of the general data protection rule from 2016 and following on the 2020 decision of the Court of Justice of the EU that says when you transfer data out of the EU to the US, the US doesn't have good enough rules and procedures to protect data. So when you use Google Analytics, there's a data transfer, I guess, that's involved there. And we're seeing more and more of the data protection boards starting to find problems with particular instantiations of, you know, of data transfer rules or mechanisms under after the Schrems II ruling. Of course, at the same time, privacy advocates are radically dissatisfied because the data protection authorities haven't gone far enough, fast enough, aggressive enough. And the vision that they have, I think, for you know a more privacy-enhanced internet has not yet come to uh, fruition. So every, everybody's unhappy because on the other side, of course, even if it hasn't produced that effect, it has cost a lot of money and hand-wringing and anxiety and stress and angst and great stuff for people like Stuart Baker with expertise. <laughs> who can right. Not to mention all those damned pop-ups. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And um, what, what I am hearing, I don't know if anyone else is hearing, but just solely from private sector authorities is that the, the private sector folks is that the, the struggle right now is to find some kind of adequate redress mechanism for the FAA 702 collection that the U.S. can do, that is collection under Section 702 of the FISA Amendments Act. 
And there are apparently in the offing various, very elaborate mechanisms with executive orders or whatever else to, uh, to try to come up with something that would satisfy GDPR and allow these data transfers to occur, at least until the Court of Justice of the European Union gets a second crack at it. I'm, I'm a little puzzled about all that. There seems to me to be a pretty good mechanism in the post-tasking review that occurs already under 702 that with a little extra juice on it could probably deal with redress there. But in any event, that seems to be where the focus is. But there's a huge amount of attention paid uh, to this on both sides of the Atlantic. No one is happy. And so, you know, we're going to have to just stay tuned and see how it plays out. But yeah, the expectation, uh, again, I'm hearing the same thing, is at, we could see a solution or at least an agreement as early as the spring or the summer, because yeah. the pressure here is pretty significant. And I think, you know, it's pressure that is starting to be felt kind of ironically on the European side. These yes. are European websites who are being held liable. Less tools and they're being told you can't use those anymore, which is disagreeable to them. You know, right. No Google fonts, right. no Google search, <laughs> no Google uh, uh, analytics. And so all of those, uh, you know, no like button. So other yeah. people can get liked on Facebook, but you can't. <laughs> I and, and so it's starting to occur to people that, yeah, maybe this a, a lot of the free infrastructure turned out to rely on this data. The other thing I was interested in is that there, there was a nice analysis of the uh, IAB rule, which suggested that the IAB protocols were designed to ensure that real-time bidding could occur on the basis of data and that people could accept the use of cookies and all of the data that went with them for kind of anybody who wanted access to that for bidding purposes. And that, that is what the Belgian DPA was saying, no, you can't do that. If you can't do that, then all real-time bidding starts to really melt down into a right. welter. And if you have to get consent for everybody who wants to bid, you're that's not, that's not going to work either. <laughs> exactly. That's too slow because these real-time bidding, and I'm, I'm by no means an expert. I bet you Dave or Scott know a lot more about this than I do, about the sort of cyber mechanics of this. But this is a very, very instantaneous bidding among advertisers as you are moving more or less in real time. And um, so if you have to pause and even a pop-up window, talk about slowing down the NSA analysts, <laughs> it's really going to throw a monkey wrench in the gears of the RTB systems. And the, so it, it, you know, if it doesn't work, I think you're really losing a lot of functionality. I mean, it may be that that is the vision of Schrems and, and privacy advocates. That is a world in which you're really not being tracked for advertising purposes and therefore, I suppose, a world in which you are paying a subscription fee. So to use Google search, you're paying two bucks a month. And for Twitter, it's five bucks a month. And Facebook is $12, whatever it is. You know, we move to a system where you pay for service. You don't give your data away for free, as it were, for the service. But it would really blow up the RTB if you had to consent each and every time it occurred. But it would only blow it up in Europe, and it would blow it up in the <laughs> yes. faces of the website of European websites. Now, maybe it's European accessible websites, which would then pick up a lot of the world. But yeah, you know, you remember there were a bunch of uh, newspapers that said we don't want any European readers at the maybe beginning. Maybe you'd have of this. subsets of EU advertisers yeah. who were the only bidders in the. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. No, I, I think it, 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 some of these chickens are finally coming home to roost in Europe. It will be interesting to see if that 
puts a different pressure on the EU to try to find a way out of this. They already feel pressure. I, I just, the question is whether they can persuade the court that they've I mean, that's done the, the right thing. I sort of feel like this, there's been this, there seems to be this focus on 702 redress as the sort of thing that needs to be done. I have to confess, I'm not sure it's a full answer to the 2020 opinion in Schrems 2, but nonetheless, it seems to be being thought of as the answer. And if it's adopted, then it will take some time before the case percolates its way up to the CJEU. So even if it gets struck down five years from now, we'll get, you know, an extension of time if we can adopt that kind of, you know, new safe harbor or privacy shield part three, using that redress mechanism as at least a bridging function to a new brighter future that I'm sure is just coming any minute now. Any minute, the, the data protection authorities are convinced that the National Security Agency is uh, making book on who's using Google fonts. I, you know, I, you know, I, I can say is, you know, I wish we could. So there's this delusion that a lot of this is when it's brought to the United States is going to be filtered through some special widened uh, machine that produces intelligence from homogenizing all the data and extracting uh, value from it, which is just completely wrong, but I, you can't exactly prove it. And so every piece of data that crosses the Atlantic is presumed to be scooped up by the intelligence services and used in ways that no in, uh, uh, European would approve. Well, fun to watch. I, I want to move on to new ways. This is, you know, I'm, I'm not exactly fun to watch, but this the, what we saw last week were a couple of things that show just how far Silicon Valley's speech suppression doctrine goes and and how far it has to go. Uh, three cases that I thought were really interesting, and Dave, I'm sure will disagree with me, but I'll walk through them. Michelle Malkin, who is a Southeast Asian woman who is pretty provocative and talks a lot about a woke race doctrine, which she disapproves of. She gave a speech at a uh, Renaissance uh, event, is an organization that the Southern Poverty Law Center says is racist. Uh, you know, I, I, that and a buck will get you to, to Capitol Hill on the subway with me because the, the Southern Poverty Law Center is kind of a smear machine cum fraudulent fundraising organization. And they put this out in order to keep their name in the public eye. But they have characterized anybody who thinks that we should control immigration as racist and therefore subject to their hate watch event. So I don't know how seriously to take their condemnation of the place where Malkin gave her speech. But, okay, maybe she should or shouldn't have done that. Maybe she was associated with people that we would not approve of. Airbnb said, we see that you gave a speech there. We don't approve. We, Southern Poverty Law Center has our manhood in a jar, uh, and we just do whatever they say. So they're racist. You get you went there. You're a racist. Your husband uses Airbnb when you travel. He's a racist. We're kicking you all off of Airbnb. You can't ever use our services again because you gave this speech, and neither can your husband. That's, you know, that is taking guilt by association three levels deep and then applying it in the real world in ways that I think set a precedent for all kinds of other things that could be done. So that's 
point one. Uh, we all saw that um, uh, GoFundMe seized the funds for the truck convoy on Ottawa because the police said, well, we're feeling like this is turning into an occupation. And so GoFundMe said, well, that, that can't be. We're just going to take the funds and give them to somebody else. Or maybe we'll give you back uh, your funds if you get in very quickly and ask for them. And I just, I do not believe they ever seized the funds of Occupy Wall Street or all of its spinoffs. And that's just a new standard for seizing the funds. If they'd waited a little longer, I wouldn't have much of a beef because there ultimately was an, uh, a court order saying, don't give these people money. And if they'd waited for that, I would would not object to their having decided not to continue to collect the funds. But they instead decided to impose their woke values twisted away. And then finally, this one, Bjorn Lomborg is a famous skeptic, not about climate change, but about whether it is the existential threat that a lot of people think it is and whether as a regulatory matter, it's worth spending what people want to spend to stop it. And he wrote a provocative piece actually picking up on other folks' research saying, look, it turns out that four or five times as many people die from cold as from heat. And so if things got warmer, we'd probably have fewer deaths. And more people die from being in cars that are not electric vehicles when they get hit by these very heavy EVs. And you have to count in deaths from EV accidents to before you decide whether lower emissions that you get from EVs are worth it. I think those facts are true, but they, they don't advance the narrative. And Facebook has said, no, then you can't, or at least you can't say it as yourself. You can cite to the research, but you can't draw the conclusions. And again, I think that's taking, we're starting to see this from DHS too. They're talking about malinformation, which is information that might be true, but doesn't fit the narrative and might cause people to engage in violent behavior. Therefore, it ought to be condemned. I think these are all new steps uh, down the road towards saying, if you've got the wrong views, you should just die. All right, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, and you may from heat stroke, right? Like, let me start at the beginning here, because Michelle Malkin has also been dropped by Young America Foundation, which is an extremely conservative yes, group for association with neo-Nazis, right? So, you know, it's not surprising to me that if, you know, a conservative political group is dropping her for being too extreme, that, you know, a much more tame U.S. corporation is going to do the same thing. And just to dial it in a little bit, you know, it wasn't a Renaissance fair that she was speaking at, but the annual American Renaissance Conference, which is hosted by a white supremacist, according to Wikipedia, uh, New Century Foundation, which primarily advocates segregation. So, like, these are, like, I'm going to just go out way out on a limb here and say, you definitely would not, you know, be too upset at, at this particular person having some issues. Maybe. Now, I, I'm not I, saying I, that... I, 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 I will only say she probably feels like she's safer or she's got, she can afford to go to more controversial conferences because she is, as she said with some irony, a person of color. Correct. Right? And, and now, so she said, you know. This is her spit. Exactly. Yes. I, I'm not a white supremacist because I'm not white. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, look, regardless of her arguments, the reality is her statements and her, her associations are on, let's just say, 
the the ragged edge disaster. Yeah. So, um, and her husband. So just, you that's know, one he, side he, of it. He, he just picked the wrong. Her wife. husband's <laughs> long for the journey. Yeah, he's long for that journey. I, I will say that you know when it comes to you know the whether or not so, you know big corporations have too much power over American discourse. I think that's a separate question from this particular incident, where I, you could obviously see. Any corporation exercising their First Amendment rights not to associate with her. I'm not for, sure like, that's. I'm not sure well. that's true. I actually think, you know, when you're in the business of offering accommodations to people, you may have a variety of restrictions on how you can say no. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna offer accommodations to people I don't like. So they may. Yet you be, might, but be this challenged. is not the case you would want to take to point that yeah. out. Okay. Let's just put All it right. that way. So, and then it comes down to you know Facebook. Taking, you know, not individual, did you say the facts as, you know, on their face value, but looking at a larger narrative of your communications to determine whether or not you're pushing propaganda. And, you know, what this one really reminded me of was the movie Thank You for Smoking, in which you may remember the main character is a lobbyist for Big Tobacco, and they spend a lot of time sort of hiring scientists to sort of produce, you know, peer-reviewed research that doesn't happen to, you know, necessarily agree with the narrative that tobacco causes cancer. And so you, this is, you know, we see this every day, right? So if you log on to CNN or any website, you'll see an article like, you know, one glass of red wine actually is good for heart disease or something random like that, right? Like, that's not real science, but it's scientific. So in this particular case, Bjorn Lomberg, who wrote, you know, has since 2007 just been writing polemic after polemic against environmental causes, is complaining that, yeah, some of their articles are getting labeled as misinformation because, as they say, for now, global warming saves us more deaths than it causes. That's a fact. That's what they're saying. I think maybe, you know, in a very limited thing, if you look at the researchers who produced the papers that Bjorn is quoting, they disagree with him on his conclusions and the way he reads their papers. Of course and they do. They, so that's they, a, they'd never be published again if they agreed with him. For the, for the, uh, you might be the right. Same, it's the same, same dynamic that's in effect for him. As long as you present those facts in a way that supports the approved narrative, then you get to say it. But if you say, actually, those facts support a different narrative, then you are engaged in what you call propaganda. Yeah, I, I just think this is I, crazy as a, a, this is so inconsistent with how we have viewed political discourse for the last hundred years in this country that, yeah, you can say all kinds of things that are inconvenient and wrong uh, and consistent with the narrative, and it will get worked out by the debate. And people saying, oh, well, no, it won't because bad corporations will subsidize uh, speech that interferes with my view of the world. You know, I think those people should just get over it instead of trying to censor it. I, I don't disagree with you, but I will say Bjorn is also wrong in the sense that what he's writing is pretty much propaganda of a certain point. Now, I think being exposed to that propaganda is not so harmful that we should block yeah. it. But it's definitely propaganda of a type oh, of where you're like, but, 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 you know, every- more people die from cold than from heat. Like you're on a ledge somewhere and like you're not in a safe space. So I think <laughs> I think we should, you know, recognize both things can definitely be true. You know, the the this is a type of prop and the best propaganda as the russians have taught us is always the truth <laughs> that's right it's never a lie right like so the best stuff is like yeah there's racial animus in american cities you know and the russians are just pushing it they're just yep. pushing it real hard that's all fair enough you know it's true that doesn't make it not propaganda and not 
something that Twitter will block, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, I don't know that we'll block it, but uh, they, they might block it for inauthentic presentation. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Okay. Now let's go to something really easy to talk about, uh, non-controversial, the Earn It Act. Scott, it's back came out of committee. I didn't see the vote, but it looked like it was pretty substantial. That's bipartisan. Also, so are the critics. And everybody, you know, all the the best people are saying it's terrible for free speech and maybe even for encryption, although the encryption narrative is a lot less persuasive than it once was. Yeah. So the Earn It Act is another Section CDA, Section 230 carve out. 2018, you'll recall we got FOSTA and SESTA, which uh, denied 230 immunity for sites, platforms that don't do enough content moderation for sex trafficking. Now, Congress wants to do the same thing for CSAM for child sex abuse material. And it, it essentially, instead of with the idea behind Section 230 was that you get immunity for free in order to incentivize content moderation. The idea of the Earn It Act is that with respect to immunity for CSAM, you have to earn it. You don't get it automatically. You have to engage in best practices for whatever that is, for scanning and removing CSAM. The act proposes a 19-person um, headed by the Attorney General, one of them, to, to come up with best practices so that when when CSAM material is found and, let's say, plaintiffs sue for that, the platforms will be under the, will, will have the burden of showing that they have procedures in place for ensuring that, you know, this material is not on their platform, but it's it, it, it kind of. But if they pl- follow the ba- best they practices, they're they're basically home free. We don't know what the best practices will be now, uh, and if they don't follow the best practices, they're on their own, kind of in a agoraphobic plane, like North by Northwest. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I don't have a sense of like whether uh, it, it does seem like there's a lot of a lot of bipartisan support for this. On the other hand, you know, there the, the the online advocates, privacy advocates, they've been very powerful. There's not just SOPA PIPA, but we may talk about later is the ID.me. You know, like I don't know how strong they are on this, so I don't know how it's going to come yeah. out. Yeah, my my guess is usually the privacy groups are only strong when they're advancing the corporate interests of Silicon Valley, but they are here, uh, and so they are the shock troops of a determined Silicon Valley fight about this. And the the argument, the best argument, I think that the privacy groups now have is that this will discourage end to end encryption. Because you could be under the Earn It Act held liable for negligence or regla- recklessness with respect to child sex abuse material, and you can use the, the the plaintiffs can use the fact that you installed end-to-end encryption as an argument that said, well, you you willfully blinded yourself to the fact that this. CSAM was being trafficked on your site, and therefore we want to hold you liable. And the the privacy argument is, well, I, of course people aren't going to do end-to-end encryption if they can be accused of blinding themselves to a child abuse, because that's what 
And then encryption does. It makes you blind to everything that's happening on your network. And so I, I, that strikes me as an argument that says, yes, we should have end-to-end -end encryption because then we won't see any of this child sex trafficking occurring. I, they, which I'm not sure is the argument that the privacy groups really want to be making, but it does seem to me that that's what they're saying here. Right. I mean, th there's also the issue about whether to get around the end-to-end -end encryption problem. You have client-side, you know, scanning for hashes and things like that, which Apple just which you could do. You know, right. You could. You can. You can send your search hashes out to people's phones where they will be they will compare themselves to what's on the phone and if they find something that looks like it's a hash of or could be hashed into child sex abuse material they will report you if they find enough of it that was apple's idea and that way you can keep the end-to-end -end encryption as long as you don't mind instead of having it stop at apple and apple can look at it, it it never stops at apple but apple can look at it sort of while it's on your phone and that kind of technology was proposed by apple in a very elaborate and carefully thought through and deeply unpopular proposal which they have uh, tabled well because it produced false positives sure. right because they didn't do an, an md5 hash they did like you know, a fuzzy AI hash, which was, you know, <laughs> only 99% accurate. And that 1%, you know, on, on any real scale is humongous. But the, so, I, didn't they say they were only going to, only if they got 20 positives, were they actually going to report you? Was your phone actually going to report you? I mean, I have 40,000 pictures on my phone. Uh, yeah, okay. You know, a 1% false positive rate is still like 4,000 pictures, right? Like, or whatever, you know, like 400 pictures. So I just think that's where some of the concerns came because like the technology was not up to the job yeah. was realistically true. It, it sounded like it was, and then it wasn't. I, 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 that, I'm quite it, prepared to believe it. It seems like a, a, a much less simple approach than being able to actually look at the stuff because you've broken the encryption in the middle of the uh, transmission. And, and this is definitely people trying to slice the, you know, the, the line as thin as they can get it to, you know, philosophically and technically, for sure. All right. Let's talk. Let's, last one. I, I think this is the last one. ID.me and face recognition and the IRS. The IRS announced that it was moving to using ID.me to verify taxpayers. And verifying taxpayers is obviously absolutely essential because the amount of fraud from fake IDs, uh, especially in COVID times, I've seen estimates up to $400 billion stolen by, uh, you know, Nigerian scammers and hackers from Russia, most of whom have to fake their identity as an American person to claim unemployment benefits and tax refunds. And if you've ever been the victim of that kind of thing, it's just, it's an endless hassle. So the IRS proposed to do that, and they just walked into a buzzsaw, both uh, on the Democratic and the uh, Republican side. Scott, take us through this. Sure. So I think the ID.me, first of all, it's an example of the thing that uh, following up on the previous story of where online advocacy was successful, at least so far. So, you know, the story is one of like, fear and kind of trepidation about facial recognition and algorithmic bias. But it's also, I think, a story not just about privacy, but about privatization. Like, why is the IRS outsourcing authentication to a private company? 
and especially not a fantastic one. Just a little background. So the IRS used to use Equifax to verify. I remember that in, in order to get... it would say, what was your mortgage payment four years ago? Or uh, <laughs> did you live at this address? Did you bank at this at, at this bank? You got four choices and you know, uh, you, you had to pick. And I thought to myself, my God, they're protecting my privacy by storing all this information and using it and basically incentivizing <laughs> people to go out and hack Equifax, steal all the data and get to the IRS to register my identity before I can. Well, I think somebody heard your heard those thoughts because that's exactly what happened. Equifax was not, you know, did not do a great job. It was massive, massive identity theft by basically just pulling down historical tax records off of the IRS website and then engaging in fraudulent tax um, returns. The after the 2017 fiasco where Equifax sent out all of our mortgage payments, uh, history of our mortgage payments to the world. The IRS switched to ID.me, which is a Virginia company. And ID.me started to use and require facial recognition for identity verification for, not in order to, not in order to file your tax return, but to look up historical tax records on the web. So it wasn't for, you know, just to, to file tax returns, but if you wanted to do research and get that information. And the interesting thing, algorithmic companies that are run on the basis of algorithms is that there are always human beings behind and they have to step in when the algorithms don't work according to plan. And basically there's, there was like just a huge backload. And Brian Krebs wrote on his security blog, Krebs on Security, how difficult it was for him to actually go through the process of using ID.me, how slow it was. And how he, he was going um, to wait three and a half hours uh, uh, to get right, to get his right. human reviewer. Yeah, you know, but, but right. you know, Wyden's letter, Wyden's letter says, you don't need this stupid face recognition technology, just use human beings. And I thought to myself, my God, you know, that's like saying everybody should be in that three and a half hour queue, except that it would be three and a half weeks. I, you know, I just got, I got a piece of mail, just, just to personalize this. I got a piece of mail from the IRS about a month ago that said, you haven't filed your return from last April. And we've got this credit for you that we're just going to take because you obviously are some kind of scammer unless you get your return in right away. So I, you know, I, naturally I call them right away. And after about an hour, when they find that, yes, actually we cashed the check that was in with the return when you sent it to the, the poor woman who was handling the desk said, you know, I think there's a lot of returns we haven't really actually even opened. <laughs> You're probably, oh, no. <laughs> like, this is from nine months ago. And then it turns out there were some from 2019 they haven't even opened. And so the idea that the IRS should do this, preposterous, right? Just having any well, human being try to do it, they're not as good as the facial recognition uh, algorithms anymore. And they're more biased, almost certainly, right? Because you know, they recognize people who look like them and they don't recognize people who don't look like them because that's the way human beings are. And so we'd have more bias, we'd have less efficiency, we'd have more fraud. I do, I do not see any reason not to be using face recognition. You know, I, I, you, I'm sure ID.me has things that they're embarrassed by about the, how their system worked, but the idea of 
giving up face recognition, which is what all of these senators are, uh, you know, yarping on a lot about, is as about as nuts as possible. And everybody who's listening to this, who's saying, "Yeah, right on, my privacy," is going to get screwed because of it. Well, I, I, can, can, oh, I'm sorry. Go, please. Go no, ahead. I mean, I learned that Stuart Baker personally files written checks instead of having an accountant do an e-file. Absolutely, which I thought was <laughs> fascinating. <laughs> But go ahead, Scott. Sorry. Make those sons of bitches no, open the damn no, no, account. No. <laughs> oh, mail. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. Well, I, I just yeah, I I don't want to get into the whole question of algorithmic bias because I, in many ways I agree with a lot of the things that you've said, Stuart, over the shows about the criticism of algorithmic bias. But it is a real issue though because. Like, if, in fact, identity verification for something extremely important like your tax record makes it much harder for marginalized groups, then that it does kind of accelerate the power inequalities. That's not a nothing thing. It's, it's not mean, nothing, but, you know, but it, you, it is. And it turns out that face recognition varies a lot by what you're trying to do with it. This is meant to be a one-to-one -one match in which you look at the picture and you look at the live video and you say, do they match? That's the, the, it's, it's much harder to find serious bias there. And the solutions have got, the algorithms have gotten far better, but they depend still on having decent lighting. And I can imagine that you might have problems with lighting that makes it hard with your video to get recognized by the machine. So I, it, it's conceivable that, that there are still going to be problems, especially with people with darker skin, if they're using video and there's poor lighting. So I, I won't say it's nothing, but the the accuracy of those things has gone from being 5% you know, error for white males and about 10% for females and black males uh, to being 0.2% error rate for black males and 0.1% for white males. It's just tremendously reduced. And that's still, you know, one in a thousand, uh, 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 you get errors, but that's a whole lot better than it was when this narrative was set in stone. Yeah, I, I would just say that, you know, you know, people are afraid of facial recognition. And they also hate the IRS. <laughs> I think that's so. Right. <laughs> I, I think there were a lot of people who said uh, hey, hey, anything the IRS is doing has got to be bad. I, I think that, I think that's that's the success of online <laughs> advocacy. Just saying IRS over and over. Um, so, no. All right. Okay, Scott. This was ter don't don't forget our Indian story. Oh yeah. Oh don't Jesus! I for completely forgot that. And and it's a great story. I must be skipping around in the agenda too much. What Dave? You, you take it. Uh, 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 from here. It's a story that really doesn't fit any of the narratives or not a lot of the narratives, and yet it's probably a harbinger of a lot of stuff in the future. Well, I think it's interesting because it it fits the darkest possible narrative. So the story that we're talking about, it came out in the Washington Post, and then also Gizmodo and uh, Sentinel One released a really long report about it. And it's you know, about an allegation that, or about a finding that several Indian activists who have been arrested, one of whom has died in prison, were put in jail because their computers were hacked by the Indian government and evidence was placed on their laptops by the Indian government. 
So this is like, it's explosive, really. Yeah. If you think about, you know, a democracy doing something like this. And I think one of the, I mean, there's been very convincing evidence. A company called Arsenal did the initial report. And, you know, this is long. It's like, it's been going on for a decade. And some of this work, you know, is much, it's pretty obvious in retrospect. For example, the versions of the incriminating documents that he had on his laptop were from a version of Word that he didn't even have installed. Right. And, and then they were in you know, hidden like, files that had never been opened. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So, like, it's almost like you're looking at something where, you know, the toolkit they used to put the information on his laptop was apparently very primitive and, you know, clearly effective, but fairly primitive. And the way they did it doesn't show that they were, like, the world's most effective, you know, hackers. But they've been operating for 10 years. They've been doing this to a lot of people. And it makes it very hard for anyone to trust the rule of law in a country that will plant evidence on your lap. And this is, it's funny because every criminal defendant says this always is saying, <laughs> right. You know this, right? Like, it's like, they're like, no, there was evidence played on my computer. I've been set it's up. not me. It's not mine. <laughs> yeah. I've been set up. It is sometimes true. Yeah. It's a catastrophe. Right. So, and I, I think the, the one thing that, that, you know, from a larger picture that strikes you is, you know, we talk about the NSO group, we talk about like all these other things as surveillance tools, and and that implies that they're listening to you. But the reality is that any surveillance tool of this type is realistically also able to plan evidence. Yeah. So it, it brings you into, you know, like we've heard stories in the last week about, you know, some of Netanyahu's troubles, you know, being he's had, I think his son had NSO group's tool on wow. their phone. But all of these things, like, so it makes it wonder, like, you know, this is not going to be limited to this one Indian police department or the Indian government as a whole or some group within the Indian government, right? So it's going to be limited to places that are authoritarian in general who are willing to cross that boundary because at some point they're going to think the ends justify the means and this is how they're going to get the job done. And we were lucky they were so clumsy in this case that we were able to catch them. This... And I say we because we're not the people who died in prison. Right. But like – this is it's weird, you know, this is one of those things where it's like, man, knowing this happens, it should scare you. It should scare you to your core. Yeah. I and I think, you know, my guess is this felt like something that maybe was justified to the people who did it. There's a Maoist insurgency that this group I'm sure from the point of view of the people who are fighting it was way too friendly with and maybe way too effective at getting sympathy for and and maybe they deserve the sympathy they're representing the dolly to what we, they used to call untouchables it's a, it's a bad situation they have had a lot of oppression over the years but that makes me think it probably was national governments doing national security stuff which is how they got into this and then somebody thought that this would be a great way to take out what they probably thought of as the above ground arm of the Maoist insurgency. I'm willing to bet that they thought this that, that, that these were just like the IRA representatives who ran for parliament, not really different from the guys who were blowing up bars and deserved the to to go to jail too. But, you know, this is scary because it makes you realize how little we know about India. You know, we all have I think we have a pretty good idea how China works and India 
it's like Canada. It kind of gets off without much inquiry. Oh, world's largest democracy. I'm sure they're they're good people, except that Modi is now less attractive because he's more of a Hindu nationalist and, and feels more like Orban and Trump than like Gandhi. But the complexity of how government works in India, we've only begun to, uh, to scratch the surface of. And, and I think we're going to see this pattern repeat itself over and over all around the world. You know, like, we were lucky that, you know, Juan Andres and Tom Hagel at Sentinel One were able to find, like, such clear evidence this time yeah. and write it up so carefully for everybody else. But, you know, there's other teams out there who can do this who are going to have much better operational capacity. And that's going to be something that, you know, we as a society have to sort of come to grips with. It's this should scare people who believe in the rule of law. And if you're a skeptic, it's just going to, you know, make you feel like you were already in the right place. I'm sure that the Airbnb terms of service are being amended now to say that if they decide that you're a racist, they'll let you have one more night at an Airbnb, but they'll fill it with compromising material and call the cops. <laughs> I mean, you know. Sorry. <laughs> I don't think I don't think Airbnb is the nation state uh competitor that perhaps they maybe aspire to but you know there's definitely you know the Indians have had an entire other set of reports where there's a lot of groups out there doing sort of hacking for hire yeah. and there's nothing to say that those groups have any boundaries whatsoever and they could very easily be getting involved in some of this kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, and and some of them were spending a lot of time hacking a law hacking law firms to help people in their litigation. So uh, and who knows? I'm sure those groups are known to the national authorities and can be strong armed into uh, doing a little work for them. So yeah, it's. I don't think they have to be strong armed. I think you just pay them. <laughs> That's <laughs> like, fair enough. You know what I mean? Like they're already there, and you don't have to pay. Don't them, think... You don't have to pay them that much. That's what I hear. But, all right. Getting economies of scale here. <laughs> Dave, thank you. Uh, David, Chris, Scott, uh, thanks so much for all of you. To the audience, uh, don't forget to send questions to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Leave us a rating. Thanks to Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been episode 394 of the Cyberlaw Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Mm-hmm.